All right, we should be streaming. Hey there. We are streaming. Cool. All right, we are streaming. We are ready to go. Okay, so tonight we are going to kind of work our way through the, the rest of, um, well, probably not the rest of, I say that, but it's not gonna happen. We're gonna work our way through the middle of Galatians 4 which is kind of a strange section in Galatians, not strange as in weird, well, it's, but it's, it's strange, meaning it, it kind of interrupts the flow of, of Paul's argument. Um, this little section we're going to read really is a, is a different tenor, uh, a, different, a different attitude almost from Paul than the rest of the letter so far. So it's a little bit of a change of pace, and we'll kind of look at, at what, what Paul does and why. Um, even though it's a change of pace for Galatians, it's actually not uncommon in Paul's letters that he has these little sections where he kind of changes his argument for a second to say something, and then he goes back to his argument later. So we're kind of in that little section, um, at least the second half of what we're going to read tonight. So that's what's ahead of us. Um, look forward to it. It'll be, it'll be fun. There's a lot of good stuff in this section to, to work through. So let's do that. Let's begin with a prayer, and then we will get to studying. I'm going to record this on my phone just in case people want audio. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have called us together tonight around your word. We pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that we read, read your word, that we would hear from you, that as these are your words, that you would speak to us by the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, that we might see our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might trust in him, that we know that you are a God who knows us calls us by name, and claims us to be your very own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so any questions from last week that you've been pondering or anything you wanted to ask? You don't have to be mm -hmm. pondering. You could just want to ask. Kevin, I got a question about something you just said. Okay. Um, when you talked about chapter four and you said that Paul sometimes, you I forget how you said it, switches his argument or something like that. Is that... Is that some kind of Greek, you know, literary or argument or debating method or technique? So there, there is some evidence. Um, there's a lot of work done on how Paul's letters um, parallel Greek rhetorical style, um, especially as, as inherited from Aristotle, so Aristotelian Greek rhetoric. And there is some evidence that authors would do this is they'd, they'd kind of step out of the voice of the rhetoric to address their audience on a personal level and then get back into the, their, their, um, their argument again. And some see this as a rhetorical technique where you're kind of um, almost, I mean, if you read Paul enough, you kind of get this sense that he, he kind of comes on really strong theologically and then he kind of reminds them of their personal relationship with him. Kind of like, hey, you know, I'm not just some guy saying this. I lived among you. I worked among you. I even know some of you by name, those kind of things in the middle. And then he goes back to his argument. So some do see this as actually a, a rhetorical technique. And there is some evidence in other Greek rhetorical writings where the authors will do this. Well, they're almost step um, out of the character of the narrator and actually become kind of a, I'm going to talk to you individually kind of thing where they that it's this intimate change. Um, so there is some evidence of it. Um, some people don't think so, though. I'll, I'll admit that too. Some people don't think this is really something that that is 
as evident in, in Greek rhetorical writings, but it definitely is something that Paul does. And, and remember, these, these are first and foremost letters. He really is writing this to congregations. Um, and he would, he would have known the people he's writing to by name, and they would have known him literally personally. They would have known, you know, he would have spent time in their midst, except for the books where he didn't find the churches, you know, like, like the book of Colossians, Romans, he didn't start those churches. So they wouldn't have known him face to face, but like Galatians, he was actually there, lived among them. They knew him personally. So you kind of see these, these breaking ins. Okay. Does that help? So basically, yes and no was my answer. That's, that's a good answer, isn't it? Thanks. Yeah. Okay, anything else? The discussion I had this week with someone else was about the earth, wind, fire, and air. Uh-huh. And um, so I consulted with my Manhattan experts, and we came up with an answer. Or they okay. did. <laughs> and okay. I bought it. But then I found your notes tonight. And then I read the scripture for tonight and I see we're going to talk about it again. So That's right. can you we're help me out with the pronunciation and the spelling? The, the stoikeia? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> stoikeia. Um, stoikeia. Yeah. So stoi. And then I don't know how I wrote it last week. Oops. That's, that's a Greek letter. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> stoikeia. All right. So. And in Greek, it's a, it, this is the sound. So, stoicheia. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, and that's the fund, that's the foundational principles. And we did, um, I always did it backwards, right? I do a few. But it's earth, wind, fire, and air. Those are the Greek stoicheia. And so, yeah, we will talk about that again tonight he mentioned he brings it up again that's exactly right okay good all right um any other questions or thoughts before we get to our text for tonight okay well let's read uh let's read galatians chapter four and we're just going to read this little section so let's just do uh what do i say here eight through eleven that's enough yeah eight through eleven it's just a little section Galatians 4, 8 through 11. So I'm going to read that for us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Okay. So very, <laughs> very, very concerning little paragraph, right? Um, but there's a lot in it. So we're just going to kind of take our time and go through it. So number one, what is mankind's situation without faith in Christ? Just looking at this text, what does he say? We're enslaved. Enslaved to little gods. Yeah, very good. So you're in, you both, you both caught it. You're enslaved, um, which, which would be okay if you're enslaved to the right thing. But the problem is you're enslaved to the things that are fundamentally not God. Okay. So you're enslaved to the things that are, that are by nature, really not God. Okay. And this is the problem is that when you don't know the true God, 
you are still enslaved to gods, but these gods can't help you because they're not the true God. And this is, this is part of the, of the argument of the whole book of Isaiah is that um, Israel knows who the true God is, and yet they're being tempted to fall idols. And what Yahweh says, he goes, well, see, here's the thing. You can follow idols if you want, but they don't know anything and they can't help you. I'm the God who created the world. I know the past. I know the present. I know the future. And I'm going to save you. So why would you want to be enslaved to a God who can't help you? I'm here to help you. And this is, this is really kind of what Paul is getting at as well, is that when you didn't know who God truly is, and again, the God that Paul's talking about is the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the flesh to die for our sins and rise again. If, when you didn't know this God, you still were enslaved to things, right? But those things were really not God. As a matter of fact, they were things that were by nature not God. Okay, and what what we learn even further is that the things to which we are enslaved are actually creatures or they're part of the creation. All right. Um, that they're, we're enslaved to, to the, the things that were created by God instead of the creator, instead of God himself, we're actually enslaved to the creation, which is less than God. Okay. And this is the problem is that the things of creation can't save us. They can't actually deliver us from the things that we need deliverance from. Okay. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, before I brought the gospel to you, you were enslaved to the things that were by very nature are not God. Okay, or not gods even, because they had lots of them. So any any questions or thoughts on that? So I just want to show you something just for a second while we're on that. Let's just, just go for a second to, yeah, let's, let's do it this way. Let's go to Romans, okay, Romans. So we're in Galatians. If you go back one book, that's 2 Corinthians. You go back one more book, that's 1 Corinthians. You go back one more book, that's Romans. So it's not too far away. Galatians, and then you just go back 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, then Romans. And Romans chapter 1. Just want to figure out where we're going to... Hmm. Okay, so yeah, we'll just we'll just start at verse 18. I was just trying to figure out how we're going to read. We'll just read through like 23. I'll just read it for you. So Romans 1, verses 18 through 23, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their foolish, or I'm sorry, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, keep going 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, listen to this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Okay, so this is Paul in a different letter kind of saying the same thing, that outside of faith in Christ, all humans are enslaved to this worship of created things instead of God. And that actually ends up, um, instead of saving, it ends up destroying. Okay, so this is a very common idea um, in Paul's writing. And indeed, this is the condition of all humanity is that, um, and as, as you guys all know this, you, I'm not telling you something you don't know, is that sociology and, and all kinds of studies have revealed that, that every human is religious. Everybody has some longing for God or some desire to understand something greater than us or understand something less than us, whatever it is. But, but we all have this longing um, for religious fulfillment, whatever that may be. And what Paul is saying is when you don't know the real God, you will substitute a lesser thing for him, right? And you'll be enslaved to that. And the bad news is that can't save you. It just can't. It has no power. Okay. Any thoughts or questions on that? I do have kind of a comment about the passage from Romans and how it relates to this um, with respect to um, worshiping created things and, and being given up to, you know, C.S. Lewis always said that there are two kinds of people, right? One who says to God, thy will be done. And one to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. Um, and I wondered there if the connection between um, being given up to the lusts and, and specifically with respect to defilement of the body, I had heard once, and I wanted to bounce this off you just with respect to that, the context of this discussion about worshiping created things, that, that kind of specifically um, homosexual attraction is a seeking after of one's own image. And I wonder, here there seems to be specifically a connection between worshiping the created thing and, and also yourself and, and specifically the defilement of the body. And I wondered if there's any, is that anything you've ever heard before? Is there, is there a correlation there between that idea and what you've just read from Romans and how it relates to Galatians? Yeah. I mean, there is, there is some correlation. Um, but I wouldn't just say it's, it's homosexuality. It's, it's any kind of sexual perversion, which really is instead of using our flesh um, to serve the other, the one other that God gives to us to serve, we use our flesh to serve ourselves and we don't listen to God on how to use the bodies he's given us. So, so God gave us our bodies in, when we're talking about it in a sexual way um, in order to love and serve precisely one other person on the earth, you know, one other person for life. And, and that's what marriage is. And then 
um, if we do something outside of that reality, we're saying we're going to use the bodies that God gave to us in a purpose that is contrary to the creator's design for our bodies. So when Paul talks about um, one of the symptoms then of worshiping the creation instead of the creator is that we, we sin sexually, that this is, um, this is actually one of the things that's apparent and very um, prominent in a society that is worshiping the flesh instead of worshiping God or instead of worshiping the creation instead of the creator is that not just homosexual sins, but all kinds of sexual perversions um, become not only accepted, but even praised. You know, it's interesting too. I've had a lot of opportunity recently to spend some time in the Old Testament with respect to the era of kings. And uh, it's interesting how often there is a correlation between uh, polygamy and idolatry. And just yeah. with respect to your comment, you know, God gives you this one other, you know, husband or wife to, to devote yourself to. Uh, it seems to me that you've got just enough in you to devote to one other person. And if you have, if you try to go for more than that, it ends up, it ends up, you know, naturally proceeding to idolatry because you end up having to worship, you know, giving that kind of devotion to many other people seems to be, I mean, God specifically says to the Kings, you know, you, you don't, don't fall, you know, don't, don't seek many wives. Cause you know, Solomon made a lot of, uh, uh, military alliances, you know, Egypt yeah. and the horses and things like that. And, and it just seems to me kind of interesting in the context of that comment that those two things, idolatry and plural marriage seem to be related. They, they are very much related. And that's, that's part of the idolatrous nature of God's people. And then um, you think about the book of Hosea, where that's exemplified then, um, where God's people are, are kind of pictured as this as the, the bride who's wandering around looking for other companions instead of Yahweh. And he kind of says that, that this is, this is how his people have treated him. They've, they've looked around for other, others instead of him as their spouse. Um, so that's the picture of idolatry there. And um, just, just, I don't do commercials, but I'll do this one. Um, my, my very, very, very good friend, Pastor Will Whedon has a podcast called uh, Peter, help me out here. My mouth is full. The word of the Lord endures forever. And it's a, it's a podcast uh, that he does, and he's going to begin the book of Hosea. Peter? Uh, there's no set date, but it's going to be within about two or three weeks. Okay. Sometime in the March. word of the Lord endures. What he does is this is, like I said, my very good friend, Pastor Will Whedon. Um, he, he's an expert uh, exegete. He's a fantastic guy. And he just spends 15 minutes in the Bible and he just goes through a book of the Bible, 15 minutes. Um, he really concentrates on, on the history of the church and how the church fathers talk about these texts, but he's, he's very practical. Uh, he's very energetic. So he's kind of keeps you going. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a podcast. I certainly commend to all of you. Um, it's a wonderful way to spend 15 minutes in the word with a guy who knows what he's talking about. He's a good theologian. And if you got any problems with anything he says, call me because I'll call him and yell at him for you yeah uh P peter just posted the website on the uh in the chat there the word endures.org that's that's um like i said that's my good buddy will Whedon. so so listen to that it's good stuff and he's going to start jose i was actually just talking about him a little bit about it today so um yeah i look forward to that that's going to be good stuff so so please if, if you're looking for a podcast or something to do while you're working out there it is listen to will he's great all right. Um, 
Hosea, that was fun. Okay, good. Let's go on. Um, number two. Wow, I wasn't expecting to spend 20 months on number one. So let's go on. Number two. What does Paul mean by saying rather to be known by God? So he says in verse nine, right? But now that you have come to know God, and he says, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? What does he mean by that? Why is he why does he stop kind of mid-sentence and, and change it and say, now that you know God, or rather that you're known by God? Why does he make that change? Shows who's making the move. Right. So this is, um, and obviously Luther picked up on this a lot in his Galatians commentary, when he talks about this is Paul, kind of how we how we understand justification by grace, how we understand salvation, how we understand our relationship to God. And, and this is actually something I think is very, is very comforting and very helpful for us because it's very hard to talk passively when we believe that salvation is something that God does for us and we play no part in that. It's very hard to say that, right? So even the idea like, well, I'm saved because I believe. Well, that's not totally true. It's not the fact that you believe that saves you is actually the faith that God has given to you that that ends up in salvation. So even even that idea of I believe is is kind of or rather the Holy Spirit gives me faith. Right. You're always kind of qualifying what you what you're saying. Um, it's the same thing as, you know, um, I, I set the alarm on Sunday morning and I get up and, and we get ourselves to church. Yeah, kind of, but really it's the Holy Spirit that's doing that, right? It's not really me. It's really the Holy Spirit working in me through the power of the word that, that gets me to do these things. Um, so this language is kind of fun where, where Paul says, well, now that you know God, you know, and, and know not, not to worship these, but you know God. And he goes, well, rather, now that God knows you, right? And, and this is, so this is kind of interesting language. And I just want to show you a little bit about how this works out in scripture. So let's, because we're reading Paul, let's, let's just stay in Paul. First of all, let's go to Romans chapter eight. So back to the same book, Romans, three books earlier than we are Romans chapter eight. You guys all know Romans eight. You could almost quote the whole thing by heart. If I got you started, you'd be like, I know that passage. It's, it's very familiar stuff to you. Okay. So let's look at, let's look at Romans eight. Oh, well, why not start at 28? You guys know that verse. You like it. We'll, we'll be nice. So Romans eight, 28, everyone's favorite verse. Um, but then we're going to read 29. Cause I want you to see how this works. Okay. Romans eight, 28 and 29. I'll read it while you guys are, are turning there still, I guess. Um, so it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to this. For those wh whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So the point is, is that salvation is actually tied up in this idea of God knowing, God knowing us. Okay, and and this is kind of a big idea. Now, let's see how do we want to do this. 
So let's go to the Psalms. Let's go to the book of Psalms. So this book of Psalms, you're going to kind of do that. You're going to kind of open to the middle of the Old Testament if you can, right? I don't know. Uh, I'm a trained expert. So Psalms, well, I, I missed that. Well, I was about 50 Psalms off. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Okay, Psalm 139. You guys all know this psalm. It's very, very familiar to all of you. Um, we'll just read a couple of the verses anyway. Okay, so Psalm 139. Um, let's see, where do we want to read? You could read 13. Does that work? Starting in 13. Okay, so Psalm 139. Let's read 13 and I don't know. How far do you guys want to read? Yeah, let's go, let's go 13 through 16, I guess. Yeah, 13 through 16. Someone read that for us. Psalm 139 verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Okay, so, so this is the whole idea that God knows us. He's known us from even before we were born. He's seen us. His, our days are written in his book. He knows us. It's this whole idea, okay? Um, and, and let's go to, well, let's just go to Jeremiah. We'll do Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Okay, in Jeremiah 31, let's just read 31 and following. Jeremiah, so Jeremiah, if you're in Psalms, then you got to keep going. You got to get past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, and then you get to Jeremiah. Okay. So, so now this is going to twist it from God knowing us to us knowing God. So listen to Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day when I took them from it by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declared the Lord. Now listen to this. Why? Because I will forgive their, their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So this is exactly the point is that God knows us through the forgiveness of our sins. And that's how we actually know who God is. We know God through 
what he has done for us in Christ. This is who God is. He's the God who forgives, right? This is how he's going to be known by us. We're going to know him as the God who forgives and specifically as the God who forgives in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, um, do you guys want to have a little bit of fun? Just a little bit of fun. Jeremy doesn't. Anybody else want to have some fun? All right, we're going to overrule Jeremy. Let's go to let's go to um, Genesis. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis twenty-two. If you're on the three-year lectionary series, you, this might sound familiar from Sunday. Genesis twenty-two. What's that story? Let me take a wild guess. Jeremy can't play. Sacrifice of Isaac. Excellent. Sacrifice of Isaac. Okay. And you guys know how the story ends, right? And he, he calls that place, the Lord will provide. And that's where we get, I don't know if you guys ever remember the Bible camp song or the old hymn that goes Jeremiah Jireh, right? The Lord has provided. That's, that's kind of that old thing. Jehovah Jireh. Oh, that's what, I'm sorry. I said Jeremiah. Jehovah Jireh. I refuse to say Jehovah because that's the wrong word. Jehovah Jireh, right? The Lord has provided. That's because that's the Hebrew. Well, Jehovah isn't, but Jireh is. So look at um, Genesis 22, and it's in verse, the light is not great here, 14. So you guys know the story. They went up on the mountain. They're going to, um, they had the, the wood and the fire and for the offering. And, and Isaac's like, dad, where's, where's the, where's the offering? And, and God was like, or Abraham's like, God will provide for the offering. And then he binds Isaac, puts him on the altar, about to kill him. And the angel says, don't kill him. And then God actually provides a ram for the offering instead of the son Isaac. So what Abraham says then um, in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And you're going, Kevin, that doesn't say see. That doesn't say anything about seeing. But here's the thing. The Hebrew actually says the Lord sees. The Hebrew for Yira, which is Jira. So you guys, when you say Jehovah Jira, the, the Hebrew word Yira is literally the verb to see. And what it means, Abraham says, the Lord sees. Now, the reason it says provided is they're, is they're, tra they're interpreting that to be sees to it. Like, I'll see to taking care of that kind of thing, that kind of idea. But, but the, the Hebrew word literally means the Lord sees. And, and if, you, if you kind of trace through Genesis into Exodus, when the Lord sees, he either comes in judgment or he comes to give grace. The Lord looks down on the Tower of Babel and sees what man is up to. And he comes down in judgment. The Lord sees his people in distress in Egypt and he comes down to save. The Lord sees his, his servant Abraham, right? And he, and he provides a sacrifice. So, so this is kind of the idea that, that this is the Lord who sees. He sees us and, and he's, he's not removed from us. He sees us and he acts on our behalf okay so this is this is this big thing where, where we say um when the lord sees us then he knows us he knows who we are he knows what we're going through he sees our condition and he sees to it to provide for us okay so in galatians we get this this 
kind of this idea that Paul's bringing all these ideas together in this one little phrase that rather known by God. Okay. And so the whole idea is that God knows us in Christ Jesus. He knows us, right? Um, and because he knows us, now he has given us a revelation to know him. Okay, does that make sense? Might have been just a ravings of madman, I don't know. But does it make sense? Any questions or thoughts? No, but I actually like the connection that you made to the Lord seeing. I feel like uh, that was also Hannah. Doesn't she say something like, the Lord has seen the, me? The something Lord has like seen that? me. That's exactly yeah. right. So, Kevin, does that mean in Psalm 139, when God has seen us in the womb, that he's coming with grace? Could you apply that in a sense? Yeah, so he sees in Christ, he sees every every um, person though they are conceived and born in sin, he sees them as one for whom he sent his son to die. Okay. So that's how he sees us. And that's how we are then taught to see one another. We see each other, every single person, no matter who they are, no matter what, you know, what their qualifications are or whatever, we see them as somebody that, that God loves in the, in this way that he sent his son, Jesus to die for them. And that's, that's how we learn to love with the love of Christ is we say, that's a person that God loved in such a way that he sent his son for them. Okay. Um, in the chat, it says, when the Lord is referenced in the Bible, is it always referring to Jesus? Not always, mostly when the Lord is referred to in the old Testament and it's, and it's tied to the act of salvation or the act of appearing or the act of interacting with humans, you can basically assume that's Jesus. Um, but sometimes the Lord, Yahweh, will also be used to refer to the Father. Okay, so he's the one who sins. And, and occasionally it is also the Holy Spirit. But, but so I wouldn't say always. I would say um, feel free to kind of figure that Lord might mean Jesus and see how that goes. But we don't want to deny the fact that, it is, that we also have the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well. Okay, that was a question from the chat. Okay, good. Any other questions or thoughts? All right, let's keep going. Um, so what is our view of sin, sin and superstition? That was fun. That was a fun way to ask that question. When I say our, I'm assuming we agree with Paul. What does he say? Is that the worthless elementary principles? Yeah, they're, they're worthless. Worthless. And what's the word before that? They're weak. weak. They're weak and worthless. Why would you enslave yourself to something that's weak and worthless? That doesn't make any sense. This is Paul's actual argument. He's like, wait a minute. I gave you the eternal almighty God who works salvation for all times. And you're turning to weak and worthless things. And you're enslaving yourself to them instead of the God who loves you and saves you. Does that make any sense? 
And this is actually Paul's argument in the book of Romans as well, in chapter six, when he says, okay, I just explained how you are saved from sin. So then why would you want to sin since that's the thing that you are saved from? Don't you know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? See, salvation by grace doesn't give us license to sin. Salvation by grace teaches us that sinning and turning to the things that aren't God and trusting in them, that's actually weak and worthless. It's literally beneath you. Okay, so when we give in to superstitions or worshiping the things of this, of this world, um, Paul will go on and talk about days and months and seasons and years. Um, he says, I'm afraid of, of, I've labored in vain. Like I gave you the real stuff and you're chasing after weak and worthless stuff. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. Peer pressure. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly what we find is that the world is enslaved to these things. And so we, we right here are tempted to actually, um, we're tempted to actually follow these things like the people around us. And um, this is just something, one of the, just a temptation we have of, of living in this world. So, so in the chat, let's see, in the chat, it says, how are days and months and seasons superstitions? Good. Uh, it was a question in the chat, a private one. So how are days and seasons and months superstitions? Astrology. Yeah, astrology. Very good. Astrology and horoscopes. Um, how many of you know your baptismal birth date? Okay. How many of you know your astrology sign? That's a problem, right? That we believe baptism was the day that we were, were, were baptized into Christ, delivered into the kingdom of God. Well, if you weren't, if you weren't baptized as an infant, maybe you do the day that you, you uh, first believed or first acknowledge your faith in Christ, right? But but that's the monumental day in our life. But instead someone says, oh, what sign are you? And oh, I'm a whatever, right? We all know that. And and this is kind of the point is we've all been kind of just taught this kind of just by reality. Um, here's the thing. So yeah, I won't say that. So so the 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 idea is here that that they're they're turning to these weak and worthless things and they might not even realize it, but, but when they're in this cycle of worshiping seasons and days and months and years, you're actually, that's, those things look like they're gods up, up there in the sky. Those, those crazy lights that shine on the day and, and moon by night, those, those things look like gods and people have always attempted to worship them, but they are not God. They are simply not of the same level of God. They are worthless and weak and they are superstitions, okay? They're not real. They don't have power. And, and this, we just got to be very careful about this. We, we like to assign power and will and authority to things that don't have power, will, and authority, okay? Um, you know, Andrew down there in Austin, I guess Mother Nature just wanted to wipe you guys out. Well, Mother Nature doesn't exist, 
right? Why are we assigning this, this creature, this, this godlike figure called Mother Nature? There's no Mother Nature. I was always, I grew up thinking, I, I'm glad my mom is nicer than nature because dude, right? So this is the point is we, we kind of just talk this way sometimes. And I, and I know that, um, and a real note. Yeah, so so Matt has actually does talk about this to, on uh, issues, etc. because a Lutheran witness talks about superstition in the next issue or in the present issue. Um, so, so what we want to do is we want to be careful to not fall in this trap of assigning the things of this world supernatural powers. And, and, and I just want you, just, just one thing I want to mention to you is that we fall into the trap, even with something like evolution. When you think about evolution, you say, well, you know, this happened because evolution seeks this or evolution wants this. Well, evolution is a theory. It doesn't have a will. It doesn't have a desire. It doesn't even have power. Evolution is supposed to be just an observation of things happening, but, but you can actually hear the the shift when we talk about these things, right? We assign these personalities, we assign these volitional concepts of, of empowering these things to change, all right? And then the most obvious superstitions are actual superstitions like good luck or karma, which by the way, karma is not real. That's a, that's a Hindu idea, okay? Um, karma is not real. Um, there's not some mystical force that's going to balance out at the end. That that's not real, and so there is no such thing as karma. That's that's saying if I do something good, something else good is going to happen. Um, that's actually called lex talionis in biblical terms, but that doesn't exist. Uh, there's no such thing as luck. Um, knocking on wood ain't going to help nothing. And uh, yeah, you're coming right over your dogma. And so all these little things that we've just kind of allowed into our our vocabulary. And I always tell this, I've probably told you guys the story. I'm, I'm boring. I only have one story. I keep telling it. But I went to, my girls went to a Lutheran high school or a Lutheran elementary school and high school. And when they were playing basketball at the Lutheran elementary school, both teams come in the middle of the court to pray. They all hold hands over a little circle and, and pray. And at the end of the prayer, they'll look at each other and go, good luck. And I went, no, no, you just prayed. You don't the need to invoke luck right? You actually prayed to the real God. Let's not invoke this make-believe weak and worthless thing. Why would we do that? Right? And then it was like, oh, you're just being picky. It's like, no, that this is actually a problem. We actually do believe that there is a God who does stuff. Let's trust in him, not luck, not karma, not fortune, not, right? Not astrology, not all these, not knocking on wood, all these kinds of things. Okay, so so that's just kind of where Paul brings into this. Now, what I'm glad you asked is that don't we observe seasons and months and years in the church? Right? I mean, seriously, Paul, you're against season and months and years? Well, it's Lent. Repent, dude. What did you give up for Lent? Right? Talk about a season. Um, which, by the way, Easter is determined by the first Sunday after the equinox in the spring. So it's, it's literally based on the, the moon. The dating of Easter is literally based on the moon. So are we guilty of this, right? Are we guilty when we follow like Christmas and Easter and, and 
and celebrating birthdays. Are we guilty of this? And, and, and that's something we, we need to think through is, um, are we looking at these things as actually the things that have power or are we just simply using the things of creation to encourage us and others to focus on God in Christ? Okay. And that's exactly the, the, the point of this is there's, there's nothing wrong with, with observing the fact that there's months and seasons and years, and there might even be things that happen on a yearly or a monthly or a cyclical basis. There's nothing wrong with observing that, but we don't become enslaved to those things. We don't worship those things. We just start looking to those things as the source of our salvation or identity, or even have control over our lives. We're free to use the things of the creation, but we're not, we're not free to worship the things of creation. Does that make yeah. sense? Kevin, yeah. um, my son-in-law is from England and uh, we noticed we've been over there a couple of times and there is this, uh, as Christianity uh, is in the decline in England, uh, beautiful churches make wonderful museums. Uh, there's this rise in, of all things, Druidism. And this is the perfect example of worship, worshiping days, weeks, months, seasons yeah. for worship's sake. Yep. And I, I ran into a couple of druids over there and um, they're interesting people yes. uh, in their in their outlook. And uh, and of course, they sit there and they say, well, Christianity is just like us. As a matter of fact, it's an offshoot of us. They're going, what? Yeah, really not. No. Um, but yeah, so so a lot of these religions are becoming back to the, the prominence. Um, Druidism, um, Wiccans, which is really kind of is actually is a is an earthly religion. Um, we were just in Sedona, Arizona for our vacation, and that's kind of the hotbed of the New Age movements. Um, there's all this, you know, crystal worship and finding vortexes where the the mountains create these whatevers. Um, but it's very much a return to the worship of kind of the stuff and finding connection, spiritual connections in the stuff. And it's really just the Norse gods are back, also, by the way. Yeah, the Norse gods are back. Thanks, Marvel. Um, all this stuff. So. It's, it's out there and it's, it's around us. And just like the Galatians, we can fall into this stuff. So this is why it's so important that we're continuing to encourage each other to focus on Christ because that's who the real God is. And that's the God that actually helps us and does save us. Okay, let's move on. Let's get, let's get to the next section. Let's Galatians 4 verses 12 through 20, which is a little bit longer section. So if you want to read, you know, kind of buckle in there. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to, be, to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose 
and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, thank you very much. So like I said, this is kind of that weird section where, where he does change his tone, right? He says, I wish I could change my tone, but, but he kind of does change his tone for the rest of the letter. He gets away from theology, kind of, and kind of gets into this relational aspect. So that, that's what we're just going to spend a little bit of time on that. So what's Paul's point in all of this? What is he getting at in this whole section? Uh, he's talking about a reversion, I think, to to this, right? Like what um, he, he uh, I mean, I guess even not, not even just this passage, but like, I mean, this whole chapter so far has been, you know, why would you go to these things after demonstrably you have, you know, been clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Why would you why would you cast that off? Good. So the last section was really the theological question of that. Why would you go to something that's weak and worthless and, and secondary when I presented to you the true God, the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Now it's a personal question. You accepted me as your teacher. You accepted me as the angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. You loved me. You cared for me. I was in your midst. You would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You know, you were blessed to help me out. And now you're just rejecting everything I taught you. You're just going to reject me. Well, you just don't like me anymore. Is that what's happening? So when I was there, we were buddies. And now you're just rejecting me. What's up? Okay, so, so it's actually kind of the same argument, but it's, it's more of a, I'm your teacher. And, you're, and when you reject what I taught you, you're literally rejecting me as your teacher, which is very different than the way you, you treated me when I was actually there with you. Not, def that? not defending them, but you got to know that as soon as he left, false teachers probably immediately started moving in on the on the group uh, you've got an organized group there they've got a basis for religion let's say and uh how much do we see in the new in the uh, new testament there the uh, false messiahs false teachers false organizers who are there to like raise money get somebody to support them in that they probably swooped right in and started working on these people oh yeah yeah bring bring 90 percent of what you learn from him but let me tell right. you about this 10 percent here that's exact. That's a very good point. That's a very good observation. That's that's exactly right, and and that's probably what happened. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at. He's like, wait a minute, and in doing that, you're actually abandoning everything I taught you. Okay, so that's a very very well said. Very good. So, yeah. so number, go ahead. It says in the footnotes here that uh, on this on trial to you, evidently Paul's appearance was repulsive, inviting disdain and disgust. What? What, what does that mean? So, so we have this description of Paul, not in the Bible, in, a, in an extra biblical source that, that really isn't credible, but it's the only description we have of Paul. And it says that he was, his eyes bulged out. He had a giant forehead, very little hair. He, he was um, bow-legged with knobby knees. So, well, so, so far, I think I got them all. Well, so, you know, it's, it, yeah, some of us read that description and go, so that sounds pretty good to me, you know, but, but it, it, they, oh, and the other thing was he was ridiculously short and overweight. So he was, he's kind of this, have you seen, have you seen Monsters Incorporated, Mike Wazowski? 
if, if you kind of do that with two eyes instead of one, that's the Apostle Paul, apparently. I don't know. With, with more that, of a bow-legged effect. Wouldn't so, that be awful difficult for him to preach to, in front of people? I mean, if that's so, true. I mean. So very good. So number five, what did Paul become? That's kind of what we're getting at. So here's the thing. It's not just that he was goofy looking, which I'm hoping he was, because that gives me hope. But um, it's it's also the idea that if if he preached to them because of some kind of ailment, what that means is that he's cursed by God. So remember that the teaching was that if 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 you are sick, it's because God is cursing you. You've done something wrong and God is getting you. So now Paul shows up with an ailment, right? Whatever it is. And there's, it, it could have been malaria. There's some evidence of that, but, but I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of the cool speculation right now. Some people think he had malaria. Um, so he went up to the high mountains where the mosquitoes weren't and malaria causes your eyes to do weird things. So they have this eye issue. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But the idea, whatever it was, he says he, he reached them because of an ailment. And the idea is that um, even in the Old Testament, if you are sick or not whole, then you are not clean and not holy. And so Paul walks up as this prophet of God. I'm going to speak to you for God, but he's sick. And they're going, why would you listen to you? You're cursed by God. You're sick. And he says, you didn't do that. You actually listened to me as an angel, as Jesus Christ himself. And you cared for me in my ailment. You didn't see me as cursed by God, but you actually saw it as a blessing to take care of me. That's, and so he became among them, right? He became among them this weak and physically weak and if we use the previous the previous phrase worthless he he becomes among them like a servant he he needs their help he's below them just in order to proclaim the gospel to them okay so as as a jew the first thing is as a jew he becomes like a gentile he lives among them right in their non-jewishness he lives among them and so he's already, as a Jew, he's living among them as, as one of them. But also, he's, he's coming to them as someone who's weak, and in his weakness, he's going to proclaim Christ. Okay, And he says, here's the thing. You guys accepted me this way. You actually rejoiced in the opportunity to serve me and to love me and take care of me and to listen to me in this case. And now after all of that, you're going to turn away. That doesn't make sense. Okay. Do you guys see that? Okay. So, so if you go back to verse 12, brothers, I entreat you to become as I am. So that's what he became among them. But what is he now? What is Paul now? When he says, I receive you to become as I am. When Paul says, as I am. What is he? Apostle. He's an apostle. They can't become apostles, though. So what else is he? You're right. 
that and that goes to the angel of Christ Jesus himself phrase. But what is he? I, I, I want you to become like I am. Go back to the previous section. What are they going back to? He wants them to be free. Very good. Excellent. He wants them to be free. Very good. Okay. He wants them to be like he is free, not enslaved to the elementary things and the worthless things and the idols. He wants them to be free in Christ Jesus. I don't want you going back to being enslaved. I want you to be like I am. I want you to be free in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You are free from the, the penalty of death. You are free from sinning. You are free from these worthless things. You are free to love and serve. You are free to bear the fruit of the spirit. We'll get to that in chapter five. Okay. But this is exact. Very good. He wants them to become like he is. He wants them to become free in Christ, not enslaved. Okay. So number six, how did the Galatians receive Paul? As an angel of God, they accepted him as pure and clean, I, the way I understand it. Okay, good. An angel of God, and then he says, even as Christ Jesus himself, right? Yes. Okay, so angel of God. Don't forget this. Whenever you're in the Bible, angel is simply the word messenger. Okay, so yeah. If you're thinking about the angels, the angelic beings, you're exactly right. Pure, holy. So that would kind of say, instead of seeing me as cursed by God because of my ailment, you actually receive me as an angel, one that's pure and holy in God's sight. Very good. Very nice. Also, they heard him as a messenger of God. As a matter of fact, they heard him as though he was speaking for Christ Jesus himself. And this then reminds us of what we talked about at the beginning of this book and also the book of Ephesians is that Paul, um, as an apostle, I got to raise room, I got to make room for this because he's a plenty potentiary ambassador. Okay, plenty potentiary ambassador. And remember, plenty means all, potent means power. So he is an all powerful ambassador. What this idea means, plenty potentiary ambassador means somebody who is given the authority to represent the one that they speak for in such a way that when they speak, you are hearing the one who sent them. So what he's saying is, you receive me as an actual apostle of Jesus Christ, you, you believed that when I taught you, you were hearing from God himself. That's how much you received me. That's how much you believed my words. And now you're turning away to worthless things. This doesn't make any sense. Okay. So this is really the thrust of his argument then is, is you heard me teach the truth of Christ Jesus about God in Christ forgiving our sins, justification by grace through faith. We talked about in, in Galatians chapter two. And, you know, you know that my words are God's words. And, and so that's what it, Paul's calling them back to listen to. Okay, yeah. we're out of time. I want to make sure we honor our time together. But any, any quick questions on that before we go? 
I was just going to comment. There's some connections there with first Thessalonians and first Timothy about um, respect for teachers and things like that. You know, um, 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 let's see, we request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, that you esteem them very highly in love uh, in first Timothy elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So uh, even if it's only in the temporal sense, if they respected him as a teacher, you know, that, that would at least be a sign that they acknowledge the, sort of the benefit of his of his preaching there as well right and that that's where exactly right. the book of hebrews also um to honor those who have, who have given to you the word um one of the things that we do is as god provides for us we thank god for the provision he's given to us and when we when we receive the word from somebody um, we don't praise that person but we thank god for that person and we listen to them as the one that god has sent to give to us the word. So, so thank God for your pastor. Um, maybe even tell your pastor sometime that you, you thank God for him and you pray for, please pray for your pastor. Please pray for your pastor, pray for your Bible study teacher. Seriously, a lot. Um, but, uh, this is, this is actually part of our reality is that God has provided these people to us to give to us his word. And the most important thing we can do is, is hear the word, but then also, to rejoice in, in the gift of that that person as the means for that word came to us. So that's that's uh, that's a big that is a big thing throughout Scripture. And and again, one of the things that, that I find quite incredible about the New Testament is how personal this is for Paul and the other apostles. And just like it is for your pastor, um, they care about you. You know, pastors care about their flock. Uh, we care about those who hear the word from us, who, who get to teach and preach and those things. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's just the way God made us is that this is all relational in several ways. Okay. But the most important thing is that we actually hear the word of God as a revelation of Jesus Christ. So very good. Any other questions before we go? Okay, let's pray. And then if you have any questions or thoughts or want to talk about anything, I'll stick around. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have sent your word into our midst this night through these words of Paul. And so we pray that you would teach us to hear your word as the very word of Christ himself. And most importantly, when you hear that word, turn us away from the things that tempt us to worship them and turn us to worship you. For when we see you, we know that you are the God who sees us, the God who knows us, and the God who forgives all of our sins, the God who conquers death on our behalf, and the God who gives to us eternal life, simply out of grace and mercy. And so we thank you. And we pray this night that you would give us peace. Knowing your love, we might sleep in that peace and that joy and awaken tomorrow to serve you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Stick around if you want. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, Thank Kevin. You. Thank you. That's blessings to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kev. You're welcome. Go cats. Go cats. <laughs> Don't they play soon? Got a question. Tonight. Go ahead. Kevin? Yep. Uh, in the Gospels, when, when 
Christ was crucified and he, it's towards the end and he's talking to the one thief on the cross and he, I will, you know, be, you will be with me in paradise. The Matthew or Luke, I mean, Luke describes that like that, but the other ones describe it like the thieves never did try to, the, the, the third, the second thief or whatever, whatever you call him, didn't say, uh, 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 yeah, that, so you. so in in Matthew the thieves revile him. That's all it says. The the thieves also right, reviled right. him and mocked him. And then in Luke you have this actual episode where Jesus has this interaction with one of the thieves, where the the one reviles him, and the other kind of says, "What are you doing? This guy's innocent." And then he turns to Jesus and he says, "Remember me when you come to your kingdom." Um, so how do you reconcile those two? So basically, Matthew is just telling us kind of the he doesn't finish the story for us he just tells us they were they were mocking um so it sounds like maybe maybe both these were mocking at first and then maybe one realized wait a minute what are we doing like this is right yeah we should be mocking him he's you know he actually is innocent and you know maybe he heard him teach and he goes like i know who this is right maybe he figured out oh wait this is this is jesus this is the Mm -hmm. guy so then he then the, the the that thief then, then doesn't mock, and he actually turns to Christ in faith, where the other thief continues to, to mock, it seems. So it seems like Matthew just kind of generically talks about that, whereas Luke kind of kind of drills down and gives us some detail, mm-hmm. which is really what you have in most of the gospel accounts, is that where these stories overlap but aren't necessarily parallel, one right. of the gospels is simply kind of like, like okay, wait, we're going to drill down into this event, where the other ones are kind of like, yeah, I mean, like, we read Mark right on Sunday and, and he goes in the wilderness. And he's tempted by the devil. That's it. Matthew and Luke tell us the three temptations and what Satan said and what Jesus said, but Mark's just like, yeah, he went and he was tempted, you know? So, so Matthew and Luke are like, wait a minute. No, no, no. We're going to tell you what the temptations were, how Satan did this and how Jesus responded. Whereas Mark just kind of blows over the whole thing and goes on to something else. So that's kind of what you have with the thief on the cross. All right. Thanks. Yep, no problem. Good night. Good night. We'll see you. Yep. Got my second shot today. Oh, yeah. How do you feel? I feel fine. Good. And Colette got hers. She's got a little bit of a headache, but yeah, she's doing okay. Sore arm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Both of us yeah. got that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we'll right. don't get any more symptoms. Well, thanks. See you Sunday. Sounds good. Thanks. Roger, you got a question? He also asked uh, about being enslaved to creation. Is that um, because we don't have a whole... I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Being enslaved to creation, Mm -hmm. is it enslaved to creation because we don't have authority over, say, the wind? Just like the disciples in the the boat when the storm rose up and Jesus was sleeping and and he awoke and... And saw, and he had authority. So, are we enslaved to creation in that way? Um, authority. So, yeah, because I, I think what you're asking, I'm not sure. I, I think, I think what we want to think about with creation is that we are given dominion over creation. That's that's part of our creation into the image of God is that we are given dominion over the creation, um, and. 
the proper way that we are to relate to creation is we are to be caretakers of creation as God is taking caretakers of us. Now, the fall messed that all up, right? The fall made creation against us and in some ways us against creation. So that's all messed up. And then what happens also with the fall is that, um, and you see this in Genesis chapter three with, with the serpent, is that all of a sudden creation gets out of, out of, out of the wrong place. So it's supposed to be God create or God man creation. And instead creation takes the place of God. And, and so the authority, which is I think what you're getting at also gets out of whack. Okay. So that in the new creation, we will have full dominion over creation again. Does that make sense? Yes. I guess I just never thought about being enslaved. To, to, I know we're talking about God here in this crisis, right. but being enslaved to creation also because we don't have authority over the hurricane. So we're, we are slaves to nature per se correct yeah so right now in the fallen state we actually are enslaved to kind of if you want to talk about it this this way uh the weather we're enslaved i mean obviously when it's five degrees out and you can't do anything about it i mean what are you gonna do go go rail against the weather and you know <laughs> overcome it you so yeah in some ways we are enslaved and that's remember that that's part of the curse of the fall is that this creation that is supposed to be a permanent blessing to you will now become a curse to you. This, this ground that was given in order to produce fruit is now going to produce thistles and briars. And this ground that it was supposed to be a joy to work. And now work is going to be travail. It's going to be hard. It's going to stink, right? And that is actually part of the curse we're living in is now, um, like you said, we are enslaved to things we can't control. And those things aren't always in our favor. And that, that is part of the reminder that this whole creation is actually out of whack because of the fall. And we long for the, the new creation when that won't be the case. When, when all of the things of God in the new creation will actually be in our favor. And those things should cause us to turn to him. What's that? Those, those enslavements, I guess you should say, it should cause us to turn to him. I'm sorry, I can't understand what you're saying. I don't know why your phone is. Uh, we, we should turn to, to God in those in those instances. Exactly right, but we don't, and this is the problem, right? So, so the correct response. I mean, I've been saying this for a year now. The correct response to the coronavirus is very simple. It's not even a question for the church. It's to repent and turn to God. But instead, we turn more and more and more away from God and say, "Oh." science is going to save us oh we're going to lick this you know and or we're going to avoid whatever and and that's the wrong response the the response to these things is not to turn away from god and, and seek shelter in some kind of human institution or human idea the the correct response to all these things if it's if it's bad weather if it's if it's a a, a virus if it's um you lose your job you know whatever it is we our first response is to turn to god to repent and trust in him to be the one that provides for us. So yeah, you're exactly right. Um, part of our enslavement is that we actually ironically turn to the things that are, that are enslaving us instead of turning to the one that can set us free. And that's, again, that's part of our sinful nature. I do it, you do it, we all do it. But, but Paul is encouraging us again to see it for what it is 
and to turn to the, the God who actually can save us and free us. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thanks, yeah, Kevin. I think, you, I think you're exactly right. Okay. Thanks. Have a good evening. You too. Thanks, Ryder.